In this episode of Ask Paul Kirtley, we're going to be talking about changing boots while canoe camping, sharpening a knife with a secondary bevel, tidying up after harvesting dead standing wood, knots for attaching guy lines to tarps, billy can choices again, and sickness and diarrhea while you're on a journey. Welcome, welcome to episode 52 of Ask Paul Kirtley, where I answer your questions about wilderness bushcraft, survival skills, and outdoor life. And it's another glorious spring day here in the south of England, in Sussex, where I am for a short while. And um, after having been in Scotland and the northeast and traveling around the UK quite a bit recently, back in the south where we run courses and there's a private course running on the other side of this area where I am today, just been visiting the guys at Frontier, some of the team that work for me, just visiting those guys uh, today uh, before they started running that program. But um, here I am, thought I'd take the time to answer some more questions and get episode 52 recorded. And we've got another bunch of varied questions. And without further ado, I'll jump straight into them. Um, this is from CJ via Twitter. And his question is, hi Paul, do you change your walking boots to something else when you're canoeing to get your feet under the seat? Um, short answer, CJ, is yes, I do. Um, I don't wear walking boots or hiking boots in my canoe. Um, whether I'm traveling in the UK or whether I'm traveling further afield, and in particular in Canada, where I've done uh, a few extended trips there. Um, what I tend to wear is some sort of river shoe. I used to wear a, an old pair of Merrells, an old pair of Merrell trail shoes. They're, they were quite flexible and um, not fairly, you know, quite compact, not particularly bulky. And so you get your feet under the seat because of course, um, there's a couple of issues. One is being comfortable, um, particularly if you're kneeling for an extended period of time. And for those of you that are not familiar, yes, you might be kneeling in the bottom of the boat, but also you might be sitting on the edge of the seat. So the seats in the canoe, you might be sitting on them um, with the edge of the seat under your, under your bum and your feet tucked underneath you. And if you've got big chunky shoes on, it's hard to get them under the seat in the first place. And also it's not comfortable to kneel in them. So something comfy, something that's gonna withstand being wet as well, because you're gonna be stepping in and out of the boat typically into the water, whether that's when you're launching or maybe you're having to line, maybe you're having to get out in some shallows to pull the boat through, whatever it is, being able to get out and walk around in the water without worrying too much about the footwear and the damage to them over time is a good thing. And then of course you want them to be quite grippy on soft mud, on wet rocks, those type of surfaces which you're typically going to get where you're canoeing. So an old pair of trail shoes is what I initially used and then what I use now is a pair of canyoneering boots which are designed not specifically for canoeing but they are specifically 
uh, meant for working on slippery rocks in the water. They drain very quickly. They're not particularly heavy. Um, they're like a pair of trail shoes, um, lightweight trainers, if you like, trail shoes, but with some ankle protection as well. Um, and they're made by, uh, by 510, and I like those quite a lot. They're quite grippy. They're good for portages as well. Somebody was asking me recently, do you change to your hiking boots when you do a portage? Um, typically not at all because A, it's a faff, you're having to get boots out of a dry bag and change. And then if you're walking down near to water, often there is other water nearby. There may be side streams coming in that you have to you ford or wade through. There may be low-lying boggy areas. The trail itself might be very wet and muddy. So I just keep my... Um, keep my boat shoes on and so I like a pair of boat shoes that I can walk around in water in mud it's got some grip on the trail I can kneel in them comfortably they've got grip on rock they drain quickly if they get full of water and um, they dry out quickly once you've finished so I don't like wearing a leather shoe or a leather boot for that reason although I have worn rogues as, a, as, a, as an experiment um, and also out of necessity sometimes that's the only footwear I had with me um, yeah, they will work, um, the Rogue RB2 boots, but over time, if you've got leather wet for an extended period of time, they're going to they're gonna crack, they're going to get damaged, they're going to dry out. Um, all the, all the um, treatment protection that's in the leather tends to leach out, and then when the boots dry out, they're very hard, and the leather's you know, somewhat damaged, um, and then you have to put a lot of something like dubbing back into them to get them soft again. So I wouldn't recommend that. Occasionally, if you had to, yes, of course, but if you're gonna do quite a lot of canoeing or you're gonna do a trip, get some shoes that are specifically for that purpose, and then take some light um, hiking boots, like the Rogues, for example, or something similar that you can wear around camp that are gonna be good in the woods, maybe, if you're gonna be in woodland environments when you come off the river, or gonna be good on rock, particularly Canadian Shield, again, where I've done a fair amount of my Canadian canoeing, um, actually in Canada, if you like, you're, you're up on rocks. Um, that Canadian Shield bedrock that is present everywhere in that classic canoe country, um, something with a good grippy sole for moving around on there but you don't need a heavy walking boot you don't want something that's too stiff either um, you don't really need a, a hiking boot that's would do you well in the mountains you just need a light trail boot or even an approach shoe it's just something lightweight you can wear at the end of the day that isn't going to take up too much room in your pack as well so that's typically what i take I take a light leather boot with a very flexible sole for the evenings and around camp and then i have a river shoe uh, a canyoneering boot for when i'm paddling in the canoe and that that's the system that i've settled on that i'm very happy with so short answer yes and then you've got the longer answer <laughs> sharpening a knife with secondary bevel this is also from Twitter, and um, this is from Nevinex XXX, and um, the, the question is, I have a not bushcraft knife with a small secondary bevel. Would you sharpen um, as it is to use as a backup or grind it out? I would keep the bevel as it is. Um, I think if you've got a pocket knife as a, as a backup um, for light work and just in case you need to use it when you don't have your more uh, solid belt knife or whatever it is you're using as your main uh, bushcraft blade and I kind of hesitate to call them bushcraft blades. I mean knives are knives, bushcraft is bushcraft. Um, 
yes, people call things bushcraft knives, but again, I've written quite a lot about people who live off the land using knives that most first world bushcrafters would be embarrassed to have. Um, you don't need an expensive knife, handmade knife. Uh, you know, a lot of the a lot of the finessing that gets done is is not necessarily um, the most important thing. Skill and knowledge are the most important things. Anyway, I'm going off on a tangent there. Um, but I think if this is coming from the point that this doesn't look like a bushcraft knife, do I need to sh change the shape of it? No, it is what it is. The, the blade is the shape that it is. Um, if you grind that down to a single flat bevel, you're going to make it thinner, um, more likely to chip it um, close to the edge. I think keep it as it is. Yes, a secondary bevel can be a bit sh harder to sharpen in the field, but once you, you, you practiced at it on a, on a small slip stone, you can do it. And then you can use something a little bit more um, uh, uh, oriented to home use when you're back at home on the bench and you've got various jigs that you can buy. Um, uh, Lansky, Gatco, etc. They make these jigs where you can put a knife with a secondary bevel in and get the angle that you want and get that really nice and squared off and get a nice constant angle all the way around. You can do that when you're at home and then when you're out in the field you can give it a, a run over the slipstone, the whetstone, whatever you've got in your pocket if you need to. Um, you don't need to go changing the shape of that to make it useful to you in the field frankly. I certainly wouldn't. I would just get it sharp. Um, tidying up after harvesting dead standing wood. This is from Instagram. This is from Paul Below. And there's a photo there which should be on your screen now if you're watching, if you're listening on the podcast. Basically, it's a late winter, early spring camp, snow still on the ground, spring snow looks somewhat um, compressed, a bit granular, not particularly deep by the looks of it. There's a foot of somebody with a Sorel caribou boot walking slightly away. There's a fire. It's a little bit of a mess, I have to say. There's a couple of bow saws um, standing up against trees and there's some split wood and there's a fire going. There's a couple of billy cans um, and there's some other dead wood in the background that's clearly been snapped off for firewood and it's jagged and it's several feet above the ground, above the snow, where it's been snapped off. And the question is, hey Paul, I love all of your videos and blog. Your efforts are very much appreciated. My question is, once you have harvested dead standing wood, like in the picture above, what would be best practice for dealing with the unsightly stumps, if anything, at all? Thanks for your time and have a great day. Nothing like teaching the next generation proper skills for safety and respectfully living with nature. <laughs> Well, um, yeah, I mean, in, in winter, you're going to use a fair amount of firewood. You're going to burn more. You're going to have to harvest more. You are going to leave more sign in that sense. The best stuff is dead standing, and therefore you're going to have to be breaking down or cutting down standing wood. Um, could you leave that a bit tidier? Yeah, you could. You, I see that you've broken them off and there is an argument for breaking things off rather than sawing them off because it kind of looks more natural. Um, whenever you see anything sawn, you know a person has done it. When you see something that's snapped off, could be a person, could be natural. 
could be wind blown, something else could have fallen on it at some point, another branch broken it off. So in some ways it looks more natural if you just leave it as it is. Um, now clearly the whole area at the moment looks a bit of a mess, but then whenever you do anything on or near snow, you've got this lovely pristine white environment and then you kind of dirty it, you stand on it, you have a fire on it, in it, near it. Um, it all starts to look and, and you've been splitting stuff on that log there I can see which has chewed that log up a bit um, so yeah you what you could do if you wanted to is maybe try to break things off a bit lower down and um, because of course when the snow melts in the spring um, it's going to be even higher relative to the ground but I think the main thing is to leave your fire site relatively tidy and um, not leave a load of ash and half burnt logs and I think the broken off dead standing stuff, as I say, that, that could be natural. Um, I would just make sure that any extra stuff that maybe you haven't burned is, is just discarded naturally, distributed naturally, isn't left in a pile. Um, and I would just make sure everything that I had partially burned was burnt off so that um, there was little sign of me having been there. Um, that's about as much as you can do. There, there would be an argument from some people for saying saw off the, the stumps low down to make them look tidy, but that's an aesthetic thing. Um, personally, I think you're probably better off just leaving them looking more natural. That's it, really. Can't think of anything else to say about that, to be honest with you. Knots for attaching guy lines to tarps. This is from John Broadleday and he says, Hi Paul, after recently uh, over the past few months becoming aware of your work, I have to say that I love your work and your site and YouTube channel. It's one of my top to go to places for bushcraft info. Well, thank you, John. I appreciate that. I'm glad you found me and I'm glad you found the material that you've watched and consumed, listened to, read, etc. useful so far and if you are watching this on youtube and you're not aware of my blog please don't go to please do go to paulkirtley.co.uk because there is a lot of good information there and equally if you're on my blog check out my youtube channel because there's some fun videos on there as well subscribe to my channel please it helps the videos be uh, more visible to other people who might be interested as well it's the way the youtube engine works the more subscribers you have the more likely youtube is to show that video to somebody else who has similar watching habits to you so if you've watched bushcraft videos and you've liked my video and subscribed to my videos then somebody else who likes similar stuff to you is more likely to see it so um, if you're not subscribed to my YouTube channel, I would really love for you to subscribe to it. Even if that isn't the primary way that you consume my stuff, if you're consuming it on my blog, if you're listening to the podcast, I'd still really appreciate it if you're on YouTube at all to go to my channel and click on the link there to subscribe. You can get to my YouTube channel by um, just typing in paulkirtley.tv. That will take you to my YouTube channel, paulkirtley.tv. Anyway, the question from John is, my question is this, which knot would you use to tie guy lines to the eyelets or grommets on the tarp itself? Thanks and continue the awesome work. Well, John, I don't know what size tarp you are using. 
but I would suggest a, a couple of knots at least to have in your repertoire for attaching guy lines to the tarps. Um, a useful one if there is tape, if there's a tape loop on the tarp, whether it's a large tarp or a small tarp, is a double sheet bend, double sheet bend. Um, that is very stable. It's designed to be, um, it will withstand being flapped around in the wind, which is exactly, even though you want your, your tarp to be taut, you don't want it flapping around in the wind too much, it will withstand um, being flapped around. So a double sheet bend is good. And if you pass a bite through rather than the live end when you finish off the knot then it's quick release as well and as long as you cinch it up quite tight that can stay on there as long as you need it to and then you just pull the quick release and it will come out of the tape loop that's quite handy for bigger tarps where you might have longer um, guy lines you might have paracord on as a guy line and each hank of of cord is quite chunky and then you're having to stuff that into a stuff sack along with the tarp sometimes it can be easier for packing to take the guy lines off and so having that double sheet bend it'll stand you in good stead when it's on there but then psh, comes off comes out of the tape loop you can pack them separately or just pack them in the top it can be sometimes just easier to to pack them in the top or all into another bag however you organize yourself but that's a good option double sheet bend any tarp with a tape loop on that's useful um, some tarps have got little eyelets that are on a, on a tape fix, fixing, so they're not an eyelet within the material, they're an eyelet um, on the edge of the material, if you like, sort of stitched into it, not quite a tape loop, but on the edge. Hillybergs, I'm thinking of in particular, have got that type. Um, what's useful for those is a, well, you could just do a, a bowline on there, um, but that tends to use more cord. What I think is really neat is a bunt line hitch, bunt line hitch, B-U-N-T, l-i-n-e and that's kind of like a it's kind of like a clove hitch tied around itself around the um with a loop so basically um it's it's closely related to a clove hitch the way that it's tied but it allows you to cinch up quite a nice neat little knot onto a little ring um, you can attach those onto tape loops as well if you want to um, bunt line hitch will work onto onto a little tape loop if you want to um, but they don't necessarily come undone very easily, which is good for small tarps where you want to keep the guy lines attached. So bunt line, because it doesn't use a lot of the line, stays on, nice and neat, nice little hitch to know. Bunt line hitch is a good one. Um, and then if you've got um, if you've got grommets within the tarp, you know, like the, the sort of cheaper builders tarps, what you can do is. Um, Round turn and two half hitches will work, but it tends to bunch the material up because it pulls the corners into the grommet because you're, you're cinching that, you know, if you go around a couple of times and then do a couple of half hitches and pull it in, it's going to squeeze the corners in. So that, that's when a bowline might be useful because then you can have a fixed loop. So a bowline through, you know, round, uh, mouse comes out the hole, around the back of the tree, back in the hole. So basically do your loop, bring, bring it through the grommet and back through again so that you, you basically got the loop through the grommet. Um, if you want to, you can do a stopper knot on the end, although you're not going to have that much tension on it. Generally, when you're tying bowlines that are going to have a lot of tension on them, you should have a stopper. Um, but in the context of a cheap tarp, you're probably going to pull the grommet out before the bowline would fail. So um, those are good ones to know. Um, 
just trying to think of any other circumstances that something else might be might be useful no i think those are ones those ones if you, if you know how to do a double sheet bend with a quick release bunt line hitch and a bowline that's going to serve you well in any circumstance however you want to attach lost the question here we go billy can choices we talked about billy cans a little bit recently um, talked about stainless cans versus other types of pots and uh, this is a, another sort of vaguely related question this is from vince uh, leroyd and he asks hi paul vince here sorry to bother you with a kit question but i'm having trouble trying to get my hands on a decent billy can interesting i see that zebra do one but the reviews all appear ambiguous to how good it is because of the plastic clips on the side it seems they melt over open fires. I noticed you had billy cans on the course I attended with you. Did you remove the clips or did you have to mod them in any way? Many thanks for all the great work you do, Vince. Well, good to hear from you, Vince. Vince was on a, a short course that we ran earlier in the year. And yes, we did have zebra billy cans. They were zebra billy cans that you used, Vince. Um, mainly the 14s I think we had on that course the 14 centimeters and yes they do come with plastic clips on them and the, 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 the point of the plastic clips is to hold the handle upright rather than it just falling down onto the side of the billy can now when might you want to do that well you might want to do that if you're using the billy can on a stove so on a stove at home, on a gas burner, um, on a camping gas burner, whether it's one of those double Coleman um, burners. Don't know why I said Coleman, weirdly, Coleman burners. <laughs> I'm tired today, I think, I can't speak. Um, so, you know, some sort of camping setup, you might want to have the, the, the handle up and away from the heat source because the handle gets hot. Um, but if you're using the handle to hang it, to suspend it over the fire, so you're making a pot hanger, simple straight stick pot hanger with a fork on the end or a notch in the end to put the billy can over the fire, whether you're using an adjustable, what a lot of people call a wagon stick, whether you're using a tripod, whether you're using some sort of other cooking rig, campcraft style with, you know, withies or however you're arranging it. If you're hanging the pot over a fire, it doesn't matter whether it's got a plastic clip on and you see these stupid reviews people complaining about what's a very good robust stainless steel billy can that everybody has used for years we've had them you know the ones that you were using i bought when i first started frontier bushcraft in 2010 late 2010 early 2011 we've been using them almost continuously for six years we've had people using them week in week out and they're still fine um, you don't need the plastic clips if you're using them outdoors in the way that we use them on the courses it's only if you use them in a more domestic setting remember they're made in thailand they're made in southeast asia yeah they're not just for the bushcraft market they may be used domestically they may be used on camping stoves and if you want to use them on a camping stove then keeping the handle up and out of the way is is useful it's not essential but it's useful. I mean, the handle can still get hot if you're hanging it over a fire, of course. So you, you always want to be careful handling any pot that's been on a, on a heat source. Um, 
But the plastic clips, yeah, they will melt if you put them in the fire, but then you don't need them if you've got it in a fire. Um, and so what I do is I just break them off. I just snap them off as soon as, as, soon as they arrive because I don't want molten plastic on the side of the pot or on the side of the handle. So I just, as soon as I un, un, unpack the pot out the cellophane, just break them off uh, and, and bin them. Um, that's, that's what I do. Yes, you can buy metal clips to fit on them, to retrofit onto the billy cans if you want to. So if you are sometimes using them on a stove, sometimes using them suspended over the fire, yes, you can buy metal clips, which will allow you to do both. And that's a, I would say if you're genuinely doing that and it genuinely bothers you that you're getting the handle in a gas flame or it's getting too hot and you can't somehow get it off the, 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 the stove again, yeah, that would be a worthwhile mod and it was something that I might consider. You know, if I was doing a journey where I was taking um, a stove with me and I was potentially going to put that over the stove sometimes, particularly if it was a larger burner, like one of the Coleman uh, stoves with a couple of the petrol burners on them. Maybe I was doing a vehicle-based trip and I was sometimes going to use the billy over that, sometimes over a campfire. I might consider it, but it's not an essential. It's one of those little faffy, finessey things that people tend to spend more time worrying about when they're not in the woods than when they are in the woods. It's one of those sort of bedroom mods, if, as I would call it, yeah, rather than actual practical outdoor mods. So yes, you can do that if you want to. Don't worry about the plastic. You know, if you're going to be cooking with fires and you want a billy can for cooking with a fire, you cannot go wrong with a zebra. You really can't. And you, there are other pots that you can get out there. Your Coleman makes them with bales on that are wider and, and, and squatter. Um, Eagle products make some that are wider and squatter. Um, some of them have handles that will, that will stay upright. If you put them on a stove, some of them don't. It doesn't really matter. It really doesn't. You know, there's more important things to worry about. So don't, so that's not me having a go at you, Vince. That's me saying, don't be discouraged by those silly reviews. Um, they're good pots. If you need a billy can, choose a size that suits. Um, we tend to use 12s, 14s and 16s. And I would say for, you know, one to two people for a good capacity, um, the 14 is a good uh, compromise. Um, if you want to kind of have minimal space taken up by a billy and it's just for you, go for the 12, um, but it was the 14s that you used when you were with us. Lost me questions again. Sickness and diarrhea. This is the last question. And this comes from Chris. And Chris says, Hi, just wanted to ask your advice. I've recently recovered from a bout of sickness and diarrhea. I had stomach cramps, etc., and couldn't do much, if anything. How could I have survived this in the wild and keep hydrated and alive since I'm certain the illness would have destroyed my ability to do basic tasks, so promoting death? Just wondered, Chris. Well, that's a little bit black. It's a little bit bleak. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I've had bad sickness and diarrhea and you do feel like you want to die sometimes um, or you just want it to stop. Um, and having diarrhea outdoors is not much fun, largely because of the lack of toilet facilities. Um, it's just harder. Um, and also then you do have the issue of being, you know, if you're ill rather than just, rather than just having sort of symptomatic diarrhea, if you like, like an, a runny tummy, if you're actually feeling God awful and, you know, 
if you've got a temperature, if you're delirious, etc., etc. Um, if it's warm and you are struggling to stay hydrated, yeah, then there are other complications. It isn't just an inconvenience um, in the face of a lack of convenience. It's um, it's also an issue in terms of your of your health and well-being, of course. And um, you just have to do your best to, to drink um, and keep something down. Dirolite can be helpful, the sort of rehydration um, salts, those, those things can be helpful, but of course you've got to keep them down for them to be of, of benefit. And so, yeah, if you're making a journey, then it could ruin a journey, um, which is why I'm always uh, fastidious with personal hygiene, hand hygiene, after handling food, after going to the toilet, etc., before preparing food um, on a trip, you need to be really quite fastidious with making sure your hands are cleaned at those important intervals. And um, particularly when you're with other people as well, you need to be quite fastidious about water uh, discipline in terms of water purification. You need to be fastidious in terms of handling um, communal equipment in terms of, you know, not cross-contaminating things whether you're ill or not um, making sure things are washed up and high and sterilized and, and hygienically cleaned properly all of those sorts of things um, are important to avoid stomach upsets but should you get a stomach upset on a trip yeah it can be an issue if you're having to stop every five minutes to run into the bushes um, that that can be an issue then there's an issue of your strength and your and your ability and maybe you just have to stop um, and if you're in a remote place, maybe you have to just stop and wait. If you're somewhere where you're able to stop the, the trip, go and stay in, um, go and, you know, if you are hiking pretty much anywhere in the UK, for example, and even on a lot of popular hiking trails around the world, they do tend to go through habitation from time to time. And if you were near to some of those, maybe you would just have to go and stay in a motel, a B&B, uh, you know even a long distance trail that might be taking you months maybe you just have to take a couple of days out and and recover recuperate sleep um, drink go to the toilet as often as you need to etc etc and it's generally better to go to the toilet than it is to take something like a modium where you're going to bung yourself up because your body is it's got diarrhea and sickness for a reason it's trying to purge you of something that's bothering it and keeping that held in there is not necessarily going to help. The only circumstances which I would generally recommend people take something like a modium is if you have to get on a flight or, or even a train ride, um, you might want to just hold off the, the symptoms for a while while you're journeying. But if you're out in the wild, um, however wild that might be, then maybe you just have to stop. Maybe you have to, you know, spend a day or two in your tent. Um, I've had um, people who work for me here at Frontier, um, where we've been working courses for a number of weeks. Um, somebody got ill once and we took her down to the local village and she stayed in a B&B for a couple of days because she just was out, she was out of it and feeling really rotten. And she went down there, she recuperated and we got back into the woods and she was, she was fine after that. So different, you know, depending on the exact circumstances, but yeah, you have to keep getting water in. Um, and the thing I would say is however bad you feel, um, and I felt bad in the outdoors for various reasons. I've had food poisoning from immediately prior to running courses and had to run courses when I've had food poisoning and had not so much sickness, but lots of diarrhea, had to go to the toilet. Um, 
drinking mint tea. I, there was wild mint growing. I had mint tea that helped settle my stomach a little bit, stop the cramps so much. Um, having some analgesics with you as well, you know, if you've got a thumping headache or what have you that goes along with it, sickness or diarrhea, just taking things that help reduce the symptoms. Um, I, th I think there's very little that's more debilitating to your ability to think straight and uh, make good decisions in the outdoors and having a really bad headache. So I always carry uh, various forms of analgesia with me so that I can deal with that, so that I can at least then have as much clarity in my brain as possible to make good decisions. Um, and the thing I'm going to say as well is that you tend to be able to, particularly if you're in circumstances where you've got no choice, to be able to do things that maybe you would think you wouldn't otherwise be able to do. So you're saying there, well, you know, if I felt like this at home, if I felt like that out in the wilds, I might have died. Well, some people might, some people might not. Um, I very much doubt you would. If you survived at home, there's no reason why you wouldn't have survived it out in the woods. But yes, it would be harder to get water. It would be harder to go to the toilet. You would have to rest. You'd have to make the effort to get water um, rather than just kind of go, oh, I can't be bothered to go down the hill. My head's thumping. I feel awful. Um, I can't be bothered to pump this water filter or boil the water. You just have to do it. But at the end of the day, it's not that much of an effort not that much of an effort compared to the benefit you get from it. So um, I would say you probably would be able to deal with it. Um, I can't see a reason why you wouldn't, but I would think if you felt really, really rotten, lacking in strength, lacking in um, energy, then you would possibly just have to really just hunker down, stay in your shelter, stay in your tent, stay in your tarp, rest up, drink, go to the toilet when you needed to, vomit when you needed to, if you're with other people, make sure that you're not washing your hands in the same place. Make sure that you're um, not going to the toilet in the same place. Make sure that your, your cup and your bowl and everything isn't washed up with other people's things. Make sure you're not handling communal um, cooking equipment, chopping boards, anything like that that you might have with you. Get them to wait on you in that sense. I mean, we had one occasion when Ray, Ray Goodwin he got food poisoning directly before a, a program we were running in the Lake District and um, we were camping, we were wild camping um, and basically he was sort of segregated in terms of cups, spoons, um, he wasn't allowed to do any food prep, that was all removed from him so that he wasn't, however well he was cleaning his hands, you know, we just didn't want him near anything that was going to be consumed by anybody else so that there wasn't going to be any cross-contamination. Um, he eventually got better, nobody else got ill. So um, I think what we did there worked very well, but it wasn't a pleasant experience for him having sickness and diarrhea in the outside, outdoors. It's never been a pleasant experience for me when I've had diarrhea outdoors. I've only ever had diarrhea outdoors because of something, either eating food while I've been traveling to somewhere, so airports, train stations, that type of thing, um, or just somebody cooked me a chicken once, um, the Friday night before I started running a program on the Sunday. Um, I don't think it was cooked properly because I had I had a bad stomach all week. I had food poisoning all week. So um, it's never been anything I've done in the woods. So hopefully, once you get in the woods, <laughs> if you're not ill in the first few days, then you're probably going to be all right, as long as you're good with your hand washing, your hygiene, personal hygiene, your group uh, water discipline, 
your water purification discipline. As long as all of those things are good, you'll probably be fine. So it's those transition periods which are always the tricky ones. So short answer is, I think you'd be fine, but yes, it's a bit more effort and mentally you've got to be strong to do the things you know you need to do. Right, good. That's it, six questions, done. So hopefully that was useful to you. Um, I am a little bit tired today. Some of those were a little bit rambly around the edges, but hopefully, and the core was good. I think the core of what I'd said there was useful and good. And thank you for the questions. I appreciate them as always, keep them coming in. And I will see you on another Aspore Kirtley before too long. Now, before I go, last thing i run another podcast a lot of people refer to my podcast and i say well which one and they're like oh do you do you you're your ask paul kirtley's what what else do you mean I said, well the paul kirtley podcast and yes i have another podcast it's a long form interview podcast it's not on the same subscription so it's not on the same rss feed as this it's not in the same place on itunes or the other the other ones but you should be able to find it relatively easily and if you can't if you go to my blog at paulkirtley.co.uk and you click on podcast at the top which is right next to ask paul kirtley you will get links to the podcast you can watch um you can listen to them directly on my blog but also you can subscribe via all of the usual podcasting platforms so that you can get them on your on your phone you can download them onto your ipod if you still use an ipod um, or other mp3 device um, you can listen to them on your laptop however you consume your um, your podcasts a lot of people listen to them in their cars or on their way to work um, on the bus or the plane or the train or however they're traveling that's a good time to consume podcasts and those long-form interview podcasts are good now i had a little bit of a hiatus um, i didn't do much in the first part of the year with that um, but now i have uh, renewed focus on that um, because a lot of people have been telling me how much they enjoy those. I really enjoy the conversations. I learn a lot from the conversations myself, um, get to meet some interesting people. Everyone that I've had on the Paul Kirtley podcast has uh, been fascinating in one respect or another. Some really good conversations there. If, you've, if you're not aware of the Paul Kirtley podcast, um, go back and have a listen through the back library there. There's a lot of information there, a lot of knowledge from all of the other people I've had on the show. And I've got some good people lined up for the future. And I'm going to take that podcast from strength to strength now. It's one of my focus areas for the rest of this year is to really build that up. I've been thinking about the best ways that I can bring value to you um, in terms of getting information to you regularly um, with the limited amount of time that I have to produce uh, online materials uh, and, and put them out for, for free. And I think the podcast is a really is a really good one. Aspel Kirtley is another really good one. Of course, I get to answer your questions directly. Um, but if you're not aware of the other one, if you're not subscribed to the other one, please do. And there's going to be lots more useful information there from me and my guests. And um, I will see you on the next Ask Paul Kirtley, or you will hear me and my next guest on the next podcast. 
before too long. So see you there. Thanks for watching. Thanks for listening. And I will speak to you soon. Take care.